MHV Voice, connecting people and sharing ideas. Hi, welcome to the latest edition of MHV Voice. I'm Mel Brooks, and today we're going to talk more specifically around surface water and groundwater quality. Uh, we typically talk about farming topics, but it's really, really important for us to understand what we're trying to achieve um, with the changes that we're making on farm. And so this is more about what are the outputs that we're looking for and trying to influence. Um, so without further ado, let's get on with it. So improving water quality through continuous improvement to on-farm practices, biodiversity plantings and mitigation of potential point sources are all areas where we support our farmers. Um, with our farmers at MHV we have farm environment plans and um, their plans are updated annually and they have them independently audited and we're seeing a really awesome progress with the number of A audits. So an A audit means that someone is at or above good management practice. So to give you a bit of a guide, back in the 17-18 season uh, we had 32% A's and in the most recent season we had 90% A's. So with all the changes and improvements it's critically important that we understand the environment that we're operating in and um, to do that we conduct water body health research to test and expand our knowledge. So today we're keeping it in the family and we're joined by Justin Legg who's our MHV senior hydrogeologist. Justin began his career in mineral exploration. He's worked all over the world in the geological space and project management before retraining and studying in integrated water management. So combining that extensive geology and hydrology knowledge makes Justin ideal to lead our, um, our program. And he's going to talk a wee bit about the Hikio Hines, our groundwater and surface water program that he leads, and the learnings to date, and where we're going to next. So, a big no my hi to my to you, Justin. Kia ora, Mel. I mean, we know each other quite well, so I'm not going to go into a huge amount more detail on that. But why don't you start by telling us a wee bit about the evolution of the groundwater aspect of our program? So, MHV started water sampling uh, in late 2016. And the intention was that farmers wanted to know what was happening with groundwater under their farm. So we had a master student come through and he developed a program and then he left to do, to do life things. Uh, when he left there was a really good handover and as part of that handover we did a 360 review of what worked, what didn't work, where were the gaps and how could we improve it. That was done in consultation with Arafenua and other key stakeholders in the community. Um, and over time it's evolved. Um, as we've made learnings, um, people have become more engaged and people want to know, so we've just extended the program. Initially we had a pool of about 70 bores. We would take about 25, 30 bores per quarter. We are now sampling over 150 bores per quarter. The survey footprint initially was about 62,000 hectares or 620 square kilometres. Uh, at the moment I believe it's in the order of 110,000 hectares. Which, which is pretty much the whole of the Hickey O'Hines Plains. Yeah, as far as I'm aware it's the biggest independent groundwater program in the country. So that's a huge amount of information. What 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 are what are the things that are really stand out for you? What do you what do you know now that you didn't know before you started, or, or what's tested? Well, loads, loads of stuff. Um, I think the first thing is that we've really developed an amazing model of local farmer knowledge and scientific knowledge and Maltaranga Maori knowledge, and that's really really important because we've taken not just the chemistry of EH and pH and nitrate numbers, we've actually been able to put that in a, a context that can then be used by farmers. And that's really amazing because that's where mm. that magic happens. Without a computer model, we now have, based on observation, common sense and f cultural knowledge, institutional mm. knowledge, where the nitrates are coming from, how, how they're migrating across the Hekiao Heinz Plains, where they get stuck, 
How long will they be stuck for? Why do certain areas not go up in nitrates? Why do some areas go down in nitrates? Uh, we, we have a really good understanding of what's going on. And, and so how would you describe the groundwater system of the Hikio Hines? So most people think of geology in terms of layers of a cake, yeah. pages in a book. If it's layers in a cake, you've got a layer with, with water in it, then another, another layer with no water, and another aquifer layer under that, and they're separated. Mm. Here, I would say it's more like a tiramisu. In some places, it's really soggy from start to bottom. In other places, yeah, you've got a bit of sogginess, and then you've got another layer of cake, and then another bit of sogginess. So it depends on where you're drilling, but it's all interconnected. It's not discrete layers. Because that's what they used to think, that it was three distinct aquifers. That yeah. was the, the common the view. Yeah, that was done by James Domasi's thesis, um, 27, I think it was. Um, excellent work, really good starting place, but over time and more knowledge we've, we've refined our ideas. And that's the thing that I find really challenging with the science, it's what we know to be true now, isn't it? Yeah, it's and, an evolving process. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's really great. We, you know, the work that we're doing is really standing on the shoulders of other people who have come before us, and it's an evolving feast, and I think that's the other thing that's been really amazing in the science space is that people have got on board with us and happy to share with us their knowledge and their information. And so from that we can constantly refine and improve our ideas of what's going on. One of the things that came across was farmers spoke about everything draining from Mount Peel to the mouth of the Ashburton River, but other farmers said that was a wives' tale. And then when I did some science and some work around it, I found that to be basically true. But there are areas where it doesn't flow that way, and that was where the farmer said it, that was incorrect in the wives' tale. And we've been able to refine our knowledge based on what farmers are saying, and, and, and equally the local iwi have been very helpful in that space as well. You talked a wee bit about um, nitrogen and the, the transportation of nitrogen through the catchment. And what are the things that have stood out for you that, we're, that we've improved our learning on? One of the biggest learnings that has come out of this is that it's a collective system. It's not individual farms or individual locations or individual point sources. There's no boogeyman to find. Essentially, it's a catchment scale problem. And by that, I mean that nitrate uh, leaves the upper catchment in the foothills and migrates down. And as it migrates down, it accumulates and builds up. So it's very similar to a public transport system. It leaves with a few people on the train when it leaves the country. And by the time it gets to the city, it's got a lot of people on it. So there's no one single source. So before I go too far, I should probably ask you about um, or, or see how you would describe the trend of nitrate nitrogen in our catchment. In our catchment, it's a complex question, it depends over what time frame and it depends on the season and depends on your length of the data you're looking at. Um, we have seen a decrease since around late 16, early 2017. Some pundits may argue that that's because we didn't have a lot of rainfall and therefore not a lot of recharge. But equally, if you look at, as you mentioned earlier, we started seeing a lot of farmers making a lot of changes on farms. So we actually saw changes that could affect how nitrate may be managed in their farming practice. Mm -hmm. We then had a big rainfall event last year. We saw a large increase, that was expected. But what we have seen, and it's been a very wet year, we had the wettest June on record, I think, last year, Yeah. that we have seen a gradual decrease over time. So it is decreasing over time, but there will be fluctuations seasonally. And also those fluctuations are affected by irrigation seasons as well. So you can see in some areas goes up and down. The other thing I would stress, it also depends on how many bores you're looking at and where you're looking. We did find that across the catchment, because the geology is so complex, that in certain areas, one response will be very different from another. So you can't look at just half a dozen bores. And so, you know, you talked a wee bit about the rainfall that we had last year. And um, I, I think that the response 
that that we had to that and the information that was gathered from that was was phenomenal. But do you want to talk a wee bit about that because it's it's not something that a lot of a lot of people have had access to in the past. First and foremost is when we developed the program, we built a very strong relationship with a lot of our farmers. So we knew where the bores were, how to get on, um, and how to switch the bores on, and all those sorts of paraphernalia. So what that meant after the rain event was that because we had that trust and, and those strong relationships, we were able to say, okay, we're going to strip down the survey from 150 bores down to 50 bores, roughly, and we were going to go and see them every single week. So we were doing 50 bores every week. And so we had weekly data at a catchment, catchment scale, but not as high resolution. And from that, we were able to characterize certain areas where nitrates went up very quickly and then went down very quickly, other areas where nitrates basically puddled along and stay the same, and some areas where it decreased or increased very slowly and then decreased later. What that was able to do is we were able to track almost in real time what was happening in the catchment and where nitrates were changing, and then we were able to use that information to say, well, how does that relate to soils, or how does that relate to the hydrology, or how does it relate to the underlying geology of the area? So we were, from that, able to develop. We were able to find examples of those in the literature. So we can now use scientific papers or peer-reviewed examples to say, well, this is what we're seeing here. There's a huge amount of value in the information that you're mm. collecting. Mm. How, how, do you, how do we share that? How does, how does that look like to the community? We share through a variety of ways. We have farm shed talks, so mm -hmm. the community can come doing farm shed talks. We write um, reports every year that are peer-reviewed, so and they're available online. Um, we also attended the last year we attended, or the year before we attended the Mayfield show. This year we're attending the Ashburton show, so mm -hmm. you can come and ask us questions, as well as get your water tested if you want to. How else do we do it? Uh, we engage with universities. Uh, we had a Callahan student come through the research funding last year. We engage with NITAHU through the intern program. Um, we have regular meetings with all of our stakeholders. We communicate through others catchment groups. The surface water program is slightly mm -hmm. different to the groundwater program. Yes. Um, do you want to briefly describe a bit about that? The surface water program has evolved um, from roughly 12 sites every quarter and now I think we're doing in the order of about 45, 50 a quarter. Mm -hmm. We also supplement that monthly with occasional sites to understand in detail what's going on. Independently of that we also have a third party ecological group that is doing our ecological monitoring. Mm -hmm. So they measure uh, ecological stuff. I'm not an ecologist, but uh, periphyton, sediment cover. Um, and so that then also helps us to understand not only the chemistry of what's going on in the water, but also the ecology to a certain degree of what's going on in the water. And so you've talked a lot about the groundwater and surface water programs. Um, where to next? What are some of the questions that you're dying to answer? Oh, look, loads, loads of questions to answer. It's all about the source of the material, where did it come from, the transport, how did it get there, and then what was the trap that caused it to stay there? So that can be a chemical trap or a physical trap. Now that very simplistic idea that lends us, well, where are the nitrates coming from? Now, as I said earlier, that it's not just one point source, it's not one giant factory or one, you know, it's everything. So how does then you get that diffuse movement of a material migrate, and it migrates at different speeds? So at what point then did it decide to go left at a certain point rather than going straight ahead? And then when it got to a particular pot, why did it stop there and stay there? And why was it there for so long? Did they like it? Did they have free beer? What was the, <laughs> you know, the arrangement? They're the really big questions. And then to be able to provide that information back to, a, to farmers and say, well, look, this is what we understand is going underneath your feet. And perhaps you might consider changing something here or, or refining something there. Or, hey, you're doing a great job. Keep doing what you're doing. And um, it's all about that connection back into the farmers and what it means for them. 
So how, how do you make sure that you stay on that line and that, okay, so what does that mean for the farmers as opposed to getting sort of sucked down into that science for science sake? Because there's heaps of questions out there, aren't there? Yeah. That so many that you would want to know why, but not necessarily all of those are going to make a difference and ultimately drive improved environmental outcomes. Um, I spend a lot of time talking to farmers and the thing that I really love about working in the community here is they call a spade a shovel. If they don't agree with what you're doing or they've got a suggestion, they'll let you know in very blunt terms. And that keeps me very grounded. So if I can't keep my science at a point that I can still talk to a farmer over a fence about what's going on, then we don't have a conversation. It's just two dogs barking at each other. And what sort of interest from the farming community do you have from your uh, on your work? Huge, absolutely huge. Uh, to put this in context, um, I've been on over 200, oh, 250 farms off and on throughout my time here. I've had only two say they don't want to be involved. Everybody else universally, whether they're shareholders or not, any sort of farming platform, be it dairy, arable, anybody, um, all ages, all want to know. They really want to be part of it. Now that's been really incredible. I think that... Um, any suggestion to the that farmers are not interested in environmental outcomes, they they've got no idea. It, yeah. It's really. And so there's um, you don't do this just for MHV. Um, part of the program is a collaboration. Um, yeah, co- collaboration is really important to what we're doing here. Um, MHV has arguably the biggest command area in the Hekiao Hines, but obviously we don't have all of it. So with collaboration with HHWIT, the Hekiao Hines Water Enhancement Trust, BCI. Um, the Mid-Canterbury Catchment Collective, we've been able to take our program out of our immediate command area to the entire community and the entire catchment. What's been great about that collaboration is then extended to beyond the Hekiao Hines. The ideas are not being constrained just to within one little box. And, and so lastly, the Ashburton Show is coming up. Tell yes. us what the plan is. Oh, the plan. Lots and lots of things. We're really excited about it. Mm-hmm. Um, first and foremost, if you want to have your water... Uh, tested, please bring it in. We mm-hmm. won't keep records or data. This is a free service, no questions asked. Um, testing for nitrates. Testing for nitrates. Mm-hmm. Ideally, it would be great if you could bring uh, a clean sample in a clean bottle. Yeah, so we had a bit of an, a, a bit of a, a challenge, didn't we, at yeah. the Mayfield show? Yeah, people. someone brought us water in a Vegemite jar or a pickles jar. Uh, unfortunately, the oil in the water um, corrupted our machine, so it caused a bit of panic for a while. So, so you're looking for clean. Clean, in a clean bottle. Um, because we're not a registered laboratory, the data is indicative, so the results we give you will be accurate, but it's not a certified number. Other thing that we're really excited to share is um, some information. We've got questions to share what we've learned and show you what we've learned. And um, it's not just for farmers? Anyone no. can come and have Any, their water tested? Anybody can come and have their water tested. And if someone is a wee bit concerned about their um, their testing, mm-hmm. they can get a more formal or a yeah, certified yeah. test? So what we can do is we can organise a kit from Hill Laboratory in Hornby. So we'll mm-hmm. have kits there. Uh, essentially, if you take your water, well, take the kit, get a water sample, uh, if you can get it back to the MHV office by Tuesday at 2 o'clock, um, we will then, we have a courier regularly going up to Hills Laboratory and we'll just add it for you as well. You'll have to pay for the sampling yourself, but certainly the logistics of getting a sample bottle, uh, getting it to the lab, etc., etc., we can help you with all of that. And if you're really stuck, you could just ask me directly and we can work something out. One of the questions that I hadn't asked you from earlier, yeah. um, we've got some real-time sensors. Yes. Um, tell us a little bit about the difference or the, the benefits of the real-time sensors versus the, the um, intermittent Real-time sensors are a a game changer. They're incredibly valuable for the information they provide. 
when we come round once a quarter, a lot of stuff can happen in the intervening couple of months. You well, could... yeah. I mean, look at the weather we've got at the moment. It's exactly. all over the show. Exactly. So being able to capture that on an hourly basis, we can then say, well, this is when the nitrate levels went up, or this is when the groundwater's levels went up, and we can correlate that back to a rainfall event or whatever else is going on in, in, the, uh, in the environment. But what's that's for very little cost, comparatively, you can then say from day to day, hey, this is what my nitrate levels are, and this is what my groundwater levels are, and you can use that information to make more informed decisions about what you're going to do on your farm. So you talked a little bit about um, bioreactors yep. earlier on. Um, give us a little bit of a taster. So a bioreactor is um, essentially a, a pit in the ground where you have a mixture of wood chips and gravel, and the water runs through it at a specified rate. It's essentially a fermentation process. The uh, bacteria in the wood chips eats the nitrate and spits out nitrogen gas, which is what the air is made out of. If you do it too slowly, um, essentially what happens is you make um, beer and it goes off and it smells bad. If the water doesn't go through, it goes through too quickly, it doesn't have a chance to do anything and the water just comes out. But essentially for the cost of a to dig a trench and fill it full of a, an appropriate mixture of wood chips and um, gravel, you can essentially put like a, a, a filter, a natural filter that doesn't require electricity, doesn't require anything really, um, for water to come through, percolate through this thing, and then come at the other end. These things can remove upwards of 80 to 90% of your nitrates, depending on the configuration. So they're a really cheap, sustainable, um, effective solution to nitrate migration. So with collaboration with some of the farmers in the lower part of the catchment, we have an area where we're going to develop a wetland. One of the great things about that wetland is an opportunity for MHV to collaborate with Dairy NZ and utilise the um, wetlands guidelines that have been developed by Dairy NZ. So the idea is if you've got a wet patch on your farm, rather than just leaving it as a wet boggy patch, we could do, or you could do something with it to make it um, actually productive ground, but in an environmental sense. So it's providing a biological service that actually has a financial input. So through that initiative we are developing a wetland that we will um, study and work out okay what's a great configuration we'll measure how much water is going in what's the extraction of nitrate biologically out of it at the end of that system we're looking to put a biofilter so that's that um, uh, mixture of gravel and, and wood chips i mentioned earlier and that would be like also another scrubbing of that so we can say well how much water went in off a traditional farming platform through a small wetland and then through a bioreactor and we can say okay this much came out in the wetland process this much came out in the bioreactor and so again we can provide some real numbers of well what works what doesn't work then how effective are they in a real sense which you can then come and visit and see it which is you know it's easy to read about it but if you can actually go and see it and talk to the farmer who's on the farm it's great because it's a lot of ideas and a lot of different voices and so it doesn't get ended up hijacked by you know, an uber nerd like me it's actually being grounded in a lot of common sense which is great as well and practicality. Awesome. All right, so is there anything else that you think um, you want to mention or is there anything else you want to mention? I think the big thing is just to say that it's really empowering and really, as a, as a geologist, it's incredible to be involved in a community where people actually really care and they really want to be involved and that's really incredible because otherwise I would have half a dozen boards to sample and make an idea of what's going on. But to have people come and say they want to be involved, they'll share with me their stories, they'll show me how to get onto their farms, um, and I've also been part of the community. I've had more cups of tea and more um, date scones in the last three years than I've had in a lifetime. It's been really fantastic. So I think that the community should really take ownership of the fact that we're doing something really incredible here and it's being driven with a solution in mind and it's not just collecting seashells on the seashore. 
Um, so, yeah, Justin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mel. And, um, yeah, for um, any other information, people can get in touch with you directly? Yes, absolutely. My number's on the website. Feel free to call me anytime. Awesome. Cheers, Justin. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you all so much for taking the time to listen to our latest edition of MHV Voice. We really appreciate it. We've got some great topics on the horizon, but we are always interested in hearing your feedback and what other things we could be doing and sharing with you. So please get in touch. I'm Mel at mhvwater.nz. Alternatively, check out our website, mhvwater.nz, for the details of our broader team. Cheers.